Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm David. And this is the Practical Guitarist Podcast. The podcast for people who eat, sleep, and breathe guitar. Hey, everybody. I'm Jim. I'm David. And I'm Steven. All right, so today we're we're welcoming Stephen is our special guest this right, week. Our special guest, Stephen Miller, from you're in Hampton, right? Hampton, Virginia. Yes, I am. And uh, Stephen is a studio engineer. Cool. And do you you do production as well, right? All yes. Right. All right. Um, guitar player, bass player, composer, film scorer. Um, I try to wear all the hats, but right now I'm recording lots of bands, and so that's. Hopefully what I can talk to you guys wow, about today. Yes. That's so. really cool. Um, actually, what you're doing right now, like what I aspire to want to do in the next year or two, uh, I, I took all kinds of classes when I was in college for recording and production and all that. Mm-hmm. And I haven't used any of it. That was 10 years ago. So but, uh, you're a musician and I record at home. I'm actually looking at my treatment I just put up and all that here in my recording space. But um, yeah. So enough about me. This show is not about me. This is about uh, you and what you're doing right now. So let's uh, let's get started here. So um, I wanted to work backwards. We normally what we do is we ask questions and then at the end we ask people to plug their project. But we're going to flip things around. I think here in the future because we want to make sure that people who turn into the first half of the podcast can like hear what you're all about, what you got going on, and then we can work through the actual informational side of it. So, um, what projects are you currently involved in and excited about? Um, well. I'm uh, I'm in two bands right now, and uh, both of them are doing cool things in their own way. Um, I play bass in a uh, a death metal band. It's very similar to like old school Cannibal Corpse Beat Suffocation kind of okay. thing. So I play bass in that band, and we're uh, getting ready to do our um, our first full length album. Uh, we've had a couple EPs that um, I've recorded, so you can go check those out. Um, and those were kind of cool. I think what got me started into doing this as a business was how successful those recordings uh, seemed to resonate with people in the area. Um, and then cool. uh, I sing for another band called Slaghead. It's like a progressive sludge kind of thing. It's it's like if uh, Mastodon was black metal, almost. Um, <laughs> that's the easiest way to explain Sweet. it to people. Uh, um, it's it's very like dark and ambient. Nothing's in four four. It's it's fun. Um, and we just released our first full-length album um, a couple months ago in, uh, well, it was early November we did it, so just a month ago. Um, and that's out, and I recorded that as well, so you can check that out, and I can send you guys info to that. Um, so those, yeah, if you, those if, are... Yeah, I was going to say, we'll post them up in our show notes, too, just so you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, sounds cool. And then um, recording-wise, um, there's a couple of bands locally that I'm happy to work with. Um, just did a um, a remix of a single for a band out of, uh, out of Hampton, Newport News, called Eight Inner Gates. They're like um, a hip hop mixed with new metal kind of thing, and that's really fun. Um, and then I'm trying to think of some cool guitar stuff that we did. Um, I think your listeners would really dig the Bahamas Saint stuff because we did a lot of super over the top guitar recording things to make that happen. The same with the Slaghead stuff. Um, we 
took everything I knew and like did everything like as crazy as possible just to see what happened because I actually had time to work on it, you know. So um, yeah, yeah. So not not to plug my own stuff, but that those uh, those two things are usually they usually end up being my my top picks just because I got to do so many things with them and I didn't have to worry about a budget or making anyone happy or whatever. I could just do what I needed to do and experiment to my heart's yeah, content. Yeah, the only person you got to make happy but, is you. Uh, Mhm. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's kind of cool when you get to sit down and do that stuff and like go. With, Jim and I are talking. I actually sent him a song today that we were that I'm working on uh, just to get some feedback on it, and it's like it's so far left and center to what I normally do. And but but that's because like when I'm working with other musicians, it's all of their animal, right? It definitely is. Um, um. So so you're working predominantly in metal. I mean, obviously, like, a lot of your projects are based on that genre. I mean, is there other things you'd like to work with? Like, would you be interested in doing, like, a pop record or something ridiculous like that? I will record anyone, anything. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, I'm a, I'm a fan of music. I'm a fan of sounds. I'm a fan of gear. I just want to do it, right? So if someone comes to me with something that is just totally off the wall, like, yeah, why not? It's cool. Um, doing production, you have to, and if you want to do a lot of work, uh, it's in your best interest to say genre agnostic as much as possible. Um, and just take everything for what it is and just get the job and, uh, be as productive as to the team as possible to see the project to the end. So, yeah. And that's kind of where I'm at too. Is like I'm, I'm all over the map, uh, everything from recording string music to, you know, like. Uh, mm-hmm. basically the border of metal i don't i don't get an extreme into the metal stuff i just i used to when i was younger but like i've let all my rhythm skills go and all that i mean you look um, at a guy like uh bob rock it, right it was bob rock that did uh metallica and he also oh, yeah, did yeah, yeah. um uh what was it johnny cash so he was everywhere yeah Mm-hmm. And Motley Crue, Motley Crue is my favorite example. Bob Rock stuff. Oh yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. That's right, he did Motley Crue too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did he do the Saint? Uh, not Saint Anger. Um, oh, it was the Los Angeles? The Saints, uh, yeah. Los Angeles. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if he did or not. I haven't been following his career too closely as uh, you know recently. Um, so if, if he's still relevant in the game, then I'm I'm not aware of I that. I just heard about him. Yeah, and, and honestly, I just heard about it, and, and I wish I could tell you from where. It was It was Shania Twain or something like that, and I was like, oh, Bob Rock? Really? No, uh, it's Mutt Lang with Shania Twain. No, that oh, was Shania that Twain was has day. amazing, amazing oh, yeah. records. She does. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, they're divorced, um, no. <laughs> yeah. Shania Twain was married to Mutt Lang. Yep. Yeah, yep. that's what we were talking about. Yeah, but, yep. like, and, but I I don't remember yeah. if, if um, Bob is doing did her new album. Some he did somebody's, and I thought, really, Bob Rock is still out there. I, I wouldn't surprise. It was me. the same with Bob Ezrin. I yeah. didn't even know Bob yeah. Ezrin was still at it, and I was like, really, he's still doing that? Oh uh, yeah. But no, they, it's, uh, it's it's interesting that because uh, you don't you don't hear a lot of like celebrity tabloid stories about producers, yeah. so that was, that was kind of fun. Where where it always gets interesting to me, and that's kind of where I focus this next question on, is the whole idea of like engineering. You know, the science element of it. We all obviously, when you go into a studio to record, you're going to work with an engineer to help your sounds where you need them to be and everything. But how much of your job is actually spent doing production, even when you're like tapped to be a studio engineer first and foremost? Because I imagine, like, a lot of the smaller bands that come in to do um, recordings probably don't have a producer. Well, yeah, it, 
a lot of it does depend on the level of the band, but for the most part, um, I, I do find myself stepping into that producer role quite often. Um, a lot of it is just because, you know, hey, we're trusting you to make sure that this album sounds the way we want it to. So if I know how to get that guitar tone they're looking for in a way that maybe they didn't realize, or um, if I say, hey, maybe maybe we should try this instead, the end result will sound a little bit better. You know, we we take those steps together and we figure it out. But um, a lot of it's trial and error, and a lot of it is just... Uh, if if the band is super gung ho and they know like this is what we want to sound like, you know, then it's uh well I know how to do I know how to get that sound by doing this and we'll we'll go that way and if it works it works and if not we'll try something else. Um, but to have that freedom with the band to be able to kind of try stuff out and everyone's a little open minded that's always nice and um I've been very fortunate to have uh, clients who are willing to do that with me so. Sometimes when you're recording, you have to not just look at like the gear they're using or the tone they're using or the notes they're playing. You have to look at how they're playing it. You have to look at um, right, like you know if the strings are being muted properly. Maybe the way that maybe they're palm muting in such a way that it makes the low end swell up a little more than you want it to, and it's burying something else. So you have to find a cleaner way to do it. There's all you can get to a very interesting level of detail if you really want to go that far with it. And sometimes it's necessary to. Uh, to make it work. So in the studio, everything's under the microscope and that's like half the fun is how can we over obsess over this and just make it the best thing ever. So just to be able to have that ear, a lot of people don't really necessarily know offhand until they, you know, start getting into the studio production side of things. Like how many producers and engineers are just great musicians in and of themselves because they have to focus on all these little minute details. And I don't know how many records that where I've heard like the producer had to play, you know, this because they were having problems in the band or whatever is, you know, member mm-hmm. left and, and it ends up being, you know, a great performance or a great record because of that. Uh, oh yeah. The, the performance is King over everything. It doesn't matter what gear you have. If, if you don't have a good player, it's never going to work. So um, you do whatever you and, can when you're paying someone, uh, you know, money to spend time on your music. Um, and a lot of a lot of uh, people can, um, I guess, they get their feelings hurt a little bit. But you you always have to know that you're trying to make the project as good as it is, and the best, most talented person should be playing on the record. If uh, so, like if you have two guitar players and one of them can do that one little part of the song just just better than you can, well, just let him do it so it, it works out. Um, and when you have drummers, that's a different. Yeah, you story, can always but, fix it later. So you, but, but, you, you can always fix it later, so you can play live. You know what I mean? Like it's. Not, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, but, when you um, have a drummer, you could just replace but, it with a machine. <laughs> and uh, and and we do that sometimes. I've gotten very good at that. <laughs> we do we do that sometimes, but uh, uh, when the when the drummer is good, it's it's always better. Yeah. So. Um, oh yeah, for, especially for the project, definitely. But um, but yeah, people. Uh, a lot of people who don't know about recording, they're they're always surprised to hear about all these little things that you have to do, and, and there's always things that come up that you never expected to be a problem, and um, and a lot of that is just communicating ahead of time to figure it out. And uh, but that's that's a good thing to bring right. up because there are so many little things that a band could overlook to no fault of their own. Just you know, understanding the level of scrutiny that you're going to be under can be um, hard to realize if you've never done it before. So. Do you find a lot of your artists that come through want to use a click, or do they uh, want to rely on like actual natural rhythm? Is it is it very based on drummer skill? I mean, yeah, actually, that's uh actually for all those things. For
for all those things that you mentioned, uh, determine whether we use the click or not. Um, I prefer to track to a metronome. Um, it, it just makes the whole thing tighter. It makes my job editing easier, which saves them money because I'm spending less time on yeah, your project. That, um, right. So that's, that's thing number one. You're going to save money if you can actually pull it off. Number two, you actually have to be able to pull it off. If your drummer cannot lock into a click, then the whole thing is just dead in the water. And um, yeah. so there are a lot of bands that uh, are selling themselves short of a great production by not spending some time with their drummer to make sure that they can play to a metronome together. Um, yeah. Now, when you have a truly amazing band and it's just working, that's when you get to do cool things and have the option of using the click or not. And um, uh, not to you know continue to shamelessly plug, but there is a Vomit Stain song where they have... Certain sections of the song are recorded to a metronome and certain parts aren't to get a specific feel. And uh, when you when you have uh, musicians who are good enough to um, to play to a click already, then you can have fun experimenting with and without the click to get different musical vibes. Um, And so that's that's the other part of recording that makes it fun is you can use the metronome to do a whole bunch of cool things um, or to not do a bunch of cool things. It's just uh but the better you are with the click, the more fun you can have without it. Now, what what song so, was that? If you don't yeah. mind me asking, um, it is the last song on our uh, first EP. It's called "Human Collection in the Theater of Carnage." So I'll I'll send you guys that, and we can post it, um, so you can hear it. But it goes from a uh, a very fast kind of thrashy section, and then just immediately into this long doomy thing. And there was no way to get that kind of ambient section to gel the right way and unless we just played it live so yeah uh we well i threw with the project where we had uh we were it wasn't a halftime it was like around halftime and it was so what we ended up doing is we tracked it live and then we had to go back and align certain parts of the song and then i actually had to create a tempo map to match those sections where we were starting to slow down Mm-hmm. And then, oh man, it was nightmarish. I can imagine how, because I, I, I spent six hours getting it right. And oh, yeah. I can imagine like a client and, and your time and money on, or, you know, the time, their money on that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, people don't want to pay nightmares about that when stuff, I did it. So it sucks. <laughs> yeah, then they're like, um, yeah, well, you got to be, and you got to be with a, with a lawyer. What? They're like with a lawyer. They go, really? That much an hour? And you go, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Mm-hmm. You are paying not just for me. You are renting the studio. That does take power. It does take, you know, it's a little hard. I think for mm-hmm. a person that's never right, been right. in the studio to do that. Do you ever, do you ever, um, talking about that before you go go forward? Do you ever like play the part slower and then speed it up a little, just a little? I mean, minutially to get a different feel, or maybe play it and then go. You know what? We need to we need to pull that back just a little in the track to be able to make it sound differently when you get done um i do that with drum tracks sometimes so let's say um we recorded to a click and let's say the drummer did a really good job staying with the click however uh we find that this particular drummer likes to kind of play a little bit ahead of the groove and we maybe the feel needs to be a little bit behind yeah so if i think you're talking about something something about uh that kind of thing um I've done that um, a couple times, but obviously you want to try to get it the way it's supposed to be. But yeah, sometimes you do that, and when you have uh, when you have a good drummer who can play the click again, it just makes your life so much easier. It lo- allows you to play around with more things. 
Um, it gives you a lot more leeway into uh, what you can manipulate if uh, everything already sounds really good from the beginning. Um, so that's that's the key I'm going to drive home for people listening who want to get into recording is uh, don't there's no shortcuts. There's no fix it later. Um, it's when it's already really good. You can have fun messing with it and making it better or worse, yeah. you know, on your own. But uh, if you're trying to polish something that's not there, it's never going to work. Um, right. Like it's just like trying to EQ a bad guitar sound. I mean, realistically, you should have just made sure that you got the good sound on tape to begin with. Right. And then work from there. And a lot of that is experience. Um, Sometimes you don't know what a good guitar sound is until um, you've done oh, it for a while. Oh, sure. Because there's a lot of tones, and uh, maybe we can go into this topic. Uh, you know, a lot, I'm sure there's a lot of people like playing in their bedroom and they have the distortion all the way up and like the mids all the way down and um, not, you know, they get into the studio and they think that's going to work for them. And um, yeah, it, I mean, it doesn't work for you live. Why would it work in the studio? You know, <laughs> well, sure. I'm sure you guys talk about that all the time, but it, you know, it sounds sounds great just right in front of me. And there's some genres of music where that's cool too. And that's the other thing. Um, it's just uh, you know, there's no rules with any of it. It just if it sounds good, it is right. I always try to hear the band live, or at least go to a practice before I record them. Um, it it gives me a, a lot of uh, insight onto what they're really talking about when we have our uh, initial um, consultation. They say, "Oh, we want it to sound like this, and it's got to have this." And I'm like, "All right, so." They're telling me all this stuff, and then you finally go hear them, and then it's like, okay, this is what they really meant because this guy is using this kind of tone, and he's he he maybe has a this kind of style going on, and maybe their vocalist is you know has like a higher pitch, and so you're thinking about how you're going to make everything fit together when you don't really understand. Nothing locks together until you really like hear what they're hearing in their practice space in their room, like where they. Where they sound because they're like, yeah. oh, I want it to sound like me. You don't put any effects on it, and it's like, all right, all right, just let me listen to what you're talking about. So yeah, it's like, don't put any compression on that. And it's like, dude, just relax. Yeah. <laughs> um, um. So as far as auto tune goes, uh, I know that this is becoming like more prevalent. We always have to in, ask this in the metal world than it ever has. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, well, yeah, no, we talked about it in our first episode, and I, I'm not staunchly against it but like i i have an aversion to it because i think it it can be used in certain situations to correct lack of ability um obviously lack of ability sometimes needs to be corrected for you to express something too so i kind of get it but um do you ever find yourself using it on your metal projects now or yeah i use um i use melodyne for a lot of things and there's a there's a there's a lot of really cool um uses for auto-tune besides just correcting vocals. Um, we can talk about that in a second, but to to just focus on vocals for a minute. Um, as a producer, it's my job to make sure the final product sounds as good as it can, so I'm going to use every tool I have to make it work, because right. you know the, the client expects whatever you know they're asking for, and if I don't deliver, well, yeah. that, that's an unhappy person. But as far as my personal opinion on it, I just see it as a tool. There's a lot of great music that has pitch corrected vocals on it. There's a lot of great music that doesn't have pitch corrected vocals on it. It just goes back to my philosophy of if it's good, it is right. So how you got there to me is somewhat irrelevant. Um, if I'm going to care about what it is, it's because I want to reverse engineer it and figure out how they did it so I can do it myself. Um, (laughs) but that's, that's kind of my opinion on stuff. I don't think anything is off limits when it comes to making sound. 
And and I think part of the reason that it may be getting sort of a negative stigma now is because of its use in, in EDM is people have kind of like said, well, it's electronic. It's not really like the real performance. It's been modified. And, and there's sort of this aversion. I mean, hell, who is it? Um, I was listening to a record the other day. Oh, it's stupid dream theater record the new one where there he's got this fantasy that the you know that the evil of the world is edm basically mm. and i'm like i don't know that that's necessarily evil but uh maybe you don't like it that's fine uh it, anyway do you i mean i know you obviously track some of the quote-unquote cookie monster vocals do you ever find yourself auto-tuning anything like that or more or less like usually pretty much i want chocolate chip well the well, the way AutoTune oh, works, the way AutoTune works, or Melodyne, or, or WavesTune, or any any of that stuff, um, right, right. The, the the way the way that works is it's it's detecting a um, a pitch based on the input frequency. And so when you have uh, like Cookie yeah. Monster vocals, it's just a wash of noise going through it. There's no note there. I mean, there is, but yeah. it's not going to be able to. De- it's not going to be able to, to really detect it in the way that it would like a a, a normal person singing. So putting auto tune on a on a vocal, you can get some really interesting sounds with it, but it's not going to work as like a pitch correction at that point. Right. You're just putting it on to mangle the sound in some way. Um, yeah. So I don't find myself so- using it all too much on uh, the metal vocals, but. There are certainly some metal tracks where we'll use singing and background vocals, and we want some weird effects on it, and sometimes that works, and it helps sure. it blend. So, I've used, um, I've actually used tar. I've used it for bass. Actually, I find it to be a really effective tool for bass in certain circumstances because, um, since bass notes, the I don't know whether it's the fundamental or whatever goes on there, but because they're lower notes and they they you know hold the mix together, so um, so dynamically you you really have to make sure those notes are spot on so you can you can get away with sticking auto-tune on there oh yeah auto-tuning bass is uh sort of an industry standard for a lot of genres it's almost like you have to do it or you didn't do it right um the the uh the more modern like pop punk that's kind of a staple to keep that low end as tight as possible um and so that the uh the fundamental doesn't waver that's exactly what they do um Pop music, especially. How about but, that? I didn't even know that. Yeah, <laughs> and I've been but doing that, it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very uh, that's a very popular trick nowadays for um, a lot of that like uh, pop punk, screamo, uh, metalcore, all those bands that have like super super crazy production value in them. They're all doing that kind of stuff. So uh, it's with all this modified recording technique and like taking a performance now and and bending it to your will um what we've essentially just done is a as an industry is instead of making a performer go through 50 takes of something to get the right one now we're cutting it down to 15 takes or 10 takes you know and and then able to one of those to make it you know fit what we need well before you before you jump on um is it useful, like, uh, let's say you're going to double track, you're going to double track a guitar, or you're going to double track, is there every time, you know, like, double tracking bass, or do you, is double tracking vocals the norm still, is a, you know, what, where do you find double tracking is useful and not useful anymore? Um, well, double tracking is always useful, just not in every situation. Yeah. Um, so... You know, double tracking has a sound. It's very recognizable, and if if you want the sound, then obviously you have to double track it. There's a there's lots of plugins out there that try to do what they can to get more doubles out of what you got, but 
there's nothing like just right. doing it again and having a good solid second take that can stand up with the other one and be a true double to it. Um, there are certain instruments or maybe mix elements that wouldn't quite benefit from, um, you know, double tracking. Like I wouldn't have a drummer double track his drum set. Um, obviously, uh, maybe bass probably wouldn't want to double track that. Um, just having a good solid take that's going to hold it down and be very clear um, is is what's mo- more important with like a rhythm section. But what doubling does is, um, and Phil Spector used to do this too. Uh, that's that's how he got his wall of sound technique. He was trying to find a way to mask mistakes. So instead of doing a song like 50 times to get the one good one, he would do the song maybe 10 times, layer them all on top of each other, and you couldn't tell which one was the bad one. Uh, that's that's one of the right. one of the ways he developed his sound, and um, it's it seemed to you know catch on in its own way with other producers. But um, double tracking guitars obviously is uh, something that's done regularly to get the stereo effect that you uh, that you're looking for. Um, double tracking vocals always still very popular. Um, you can double track strings. You can double track uh, you yeah. know wires. Anything to make something sound you know hyper real, larger than life. Not so clear, but just big. That's that's what you would use a double track for. Um, in my experience, it seems to work. I wanted to kind of switch gears now. I wanted to talk about like the tools of the trade. Um, okay. Critical tools to nowadays digital stuff. You talked about Melodyne already, but uh, what DAW do you prefer? Um, I'm, I'm using Logic myself, but everybody has mm-hmm. a preference. Um, currently, I'm using Logic 9. And everyone's moved to 10, but I'm still on 9. Um, I'm going to be switching to 10 here probably when the new year starts. Um, I'm, uh, I've been working on so many projects, I haven't had time to switch over. And there's another tip. Yeah. Don't, don't, up, don't update your computer while you're working on 100 projects. It will, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it oh, will, yeah. It will not forebode oh, well yeah. for you. Um, I, I just got bit in the butt very recently by something like that, so I thought I'd just at least say it's that. It's a pretty big... Uh, it's a pretty big leap to just you know uh, I've gone to Pro X and mm-hmm. honestly it's they changed a lot of stuff so just be just be weary um, okay and be ready for it again yeah I've I've, uh, I've tried to stay up to date on the reading with it but until I actually get in there it'll it'll just be that yeah just, uh, you, you know you know how it is so the hands we'll, on thing once you get in right. there you're like oh no <laughs> so we'll, we'll see how that goes but uh, I'm looking forward to it because there's um, a lot of uh, there's a lot of features in there that nine doesn't have that I'm looking forward to using so um, but I use Logic however if if you really want to do um, the uh, the production stuff um, r- really though any DAW it doesn't matter as long as it can do um, basic yeah. functions it'll work but. Pro Tools does have the majority of the market share, and if you're trying to get a, a job in a nice studio, you're trying to be someone's assistant, um, you're trying to uh, be able to collaborate with the most amount of people possible, then Pro Tools is probably what you want to have, because um, more often than not, yeah, if I, someone has a DAW, they're going to have Pro Tools. And uh, a lot of the I'll really sure. cool gigs that I've had to further my career were based off me being able to know Pro Tools very well. So, so yeah. I, I trained Pro Tools. Pro Tools when I was in college, mm-hmm. and uh, actually, it was funny because we, we we trained jointly in Pro Tools and Cubase. It, this was ten years ago, you know. At the time, actually had all the mini sequencing functionality, and Pro Tools basically had none. So now that's changed. Right. Um, I haven't gotten my feet wet in any of the modern versions of Pro Tools, and I'm sure it's it's a different animal now. But I know back then it was like, well. 
track music, you know, you may want to actually look at one of these. Consider, you know, using Pro Tools for doing your final mixes and stuff. Right. And that was kind of the way that they were all looking at it. So it's a changed world now, obviously. Yeah, that's that's how it was for a long time. People would use, like, Logic and Cubase to sequence all their uh, virtual instruments and then dump them into Pro Tools for the for the mix. But, but now you can kind of keep it all together for... You know, for better or for worse, there's there's pros and cons to that. But um, but as far as more essential tools, you definitely want a DAW that can do basic functions. You know, record more than you know two tracks of audio. Um, right. You know, cert- there's certain workflow things that you want to look for. Like you want to be able to export um, individual tracks. You want to be able to uh, you know be able to convert files. You want to be able to do um. I'm trying to think of some other like essential things in in the DAW, but yeah, basically, if and for the most part, all those all the yeah. softwares now are going to yeah, all of them are doing that. But uh, but uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is Audacity is not going to cut it what? for uh, for people who are trying to um, <laughs> for people who are trying to I, do this and, I, and charge money. You, you gotta you gotta invest in uh, in a professional uh, workstation. My, so. Yeah, my, I I love it. My yeah. production uh, career ended before it got started. <laughs> Well, there you go. Well, pick oh, up Reaper. It's only $60. So funny. Yeah, and, and Reaper's usable. Like, I've seen some pretty good stuff done in Reaper. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but, it, yeah. It, it's all open. You can change whatever you want in there, and it's, you know, all the all the PC now, guys that use it got... just go go crazy with it because, you know, they, they like to tinker with stuff anyway. Oh, let's do music now. Oh, I'm going to change it so I can do this thing over here that doesn't make sense, but I can do it because it's Reaper. Well, let's talk great, about so. some of the hardware. I mean, um, first, okay. let's talk about your workstation yeah, itself, and then, yeah. and then obviously mics and, you know, everything else. Talk about all that. Like my personal setup or just what people you should be working well, it all down just the stuff you're fond of. Well, what you use no, and obviously what down. Just tell us like what, using, what you're particularly fond of. I'm sorry, I couldn't yeah, understand okay. any of that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I was gonna. What I was saying okay. is, you know, what what you use, obviously, and then what do you okay, what, what do I you use? recommend? I mean, obviously, you got to be careful. Don't recommend things, then people don't come over there and 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 use your studio. No, I'm just kidding. But, oh, sure, but, <laughs> sure. Well, well, I won't recommend specific products, but I can tell you what you should be looking for. Um, but um, as far as my personal setup, I use a lot of the uh, Universal Audio um, equipment. Um, so I have a Apollo okay. Quad Thunderbolt interface. Um, and then I have uh, a couple DSP accelerators, so I can use their plugins. The way that um, uh, the way that Universal Audio does their plugins is you uh, it's proprietary to their equipment, and there's a processor in your uh, interface, and then you re- and then you use the plugins on the built-in computer inside the interface, as opposed to Waves, where it's directly on your computer. So what that means is with the Apollo, I can I can track my instruments and I can put plugins on the input of the preamp and use plugins as outboard gear, essentially as inserts on the tracks. So that's, that's cool. That's why I lean towards that one because um, when you're on a budget, you don't have a lot of money for tons of outboard gear. And so if I wanted to track with an 1176 on the way in, that's my um, solution to doing it. I know people have a, a particular proclivity for audio stuff. I, I personally, Never used me, but it's so funny because uh, you know I use junk gear. I've got a UR22 from Steinberg, and gotcha, <laughs> like that's gotcha. I track everything with that. So 
you know, you're talking about all this cool stuff that, that honestly, this old man has no idea what you're talking about. But, um, you know, I remember the days when, okay, set <laughs> one microphone eight feet down the hallway, you know, put the, put the amp in the toilet, you know, <laughs> you know, right above the toilet and in the bathtub or whatever. Just make sure you don't turn it on, obviously. And you had Actually, it's more science than, than art yeah. now. So, like, <laughs> so, um, so you talk about the interface you you i've seen you um and for our listeners on your facebook page you've got videos where you talk about your mic pre's and things like that use so any of that information that you know people can find through your facebook page like they, people should go check it out at least get some information about what you're doing and your project as well i'll, I'll plug that page for definitely you. In the I, I found uh, uh show notes yeah i found that the the mic pre's you were using were were kind of interesting like i didn't I never even thought about picking up Mike Priest myself, um, other than I have one laying around somewhere here, but the cheapy are. How important is acoustic treatment to your recording space or your mixing space? Like, how how would you characterize that? Um, well, acoustic treatment is very important. Um, it's used to correct problems in your room, and uh, so not everybody has you know great rooms in their houses. They're not built to sound good. They're built to be kind of utilitarian. So, but, but actually I got really lucky. The, um, the room that I'm in, it's a, um, it's a bedroom. I think it's like a 12 by like 13 and a half space with a little like cubby thing in the back where the door is. Yeah. And, um, so when I was kind of putting this together, um, I, when I was checking all of my references and stuff and it actually sounded pretty good. So I don't have any acoustic treatment in my control room. I think there's just enough stuff in here. It kind of diffuses the sound enough to where it, I don't have any issues, but I've been working in this room for so long. I'm like kind of afraid to change it because I'm, I'm getting good results and um, I like how my mixes sound. Um, you know, you always want to get better, but for now I'm, I'm like really pleased with the, uh, you know, the quality of my output. So I think what people need to realize is that, if your mixes aren't translating the well that you, the way that you want them to, um, looking into acoustic treatment could be uh, the first thing you uh, you should research because if you don't have a good monitoring environment and you don't know what kind of moves you're making, then well then you know you're kind of uh, setting yourself up to fail. So um, the way that I work, I've, I'm used to how it sounds in here, and so I haven't really needed to do much. I probably should though, to be perfectly honest with you. And that's something I'm definitely looking into, trying to just see if I can get that extra 10% out of putting treatment in my room. But my um, my drum room that that I use, I got that thing just totally, you know, balls to the wall. I got treatment in there, like, because th- that is a tiny little room. It sounds like crap. There's I saw a video everywhere. of it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have yeah. some uh, pictures on my um, on my Facebook of that going up. And I was really lucky about where the room was located in my, uh, in the house that I work out of. And so, um, I wasn't, I didn't have to spend too much money, but I just got 250 bucks worth of the two inch foam and slapped it up there and it, and it was done. And normally you don't have, normally you have to do way, way more than that to make it work. Um, because the right. foam, all the foam does is it, it just takes out all the, um, the higher frequencies and uh, it gets rid of your flutters but that doesn't fix, you know, any maybe maybe mid-range nodes or low-end problems. Yeah. But but I never right. had any of those problems to begin with because the room on one side of the wall is a completely open foyer, and on the other side of the wall 
on the other end of the room is a larger bedroom. And then there's a window that goes out to the street. So the low end has plenty of space to kind of leave the room before it even builds up. It's not close to any, um, like the, you know, three of the four walls are internal and they're really thin. So the low end just goes straight out. It doesn't build up in the room. So I didn't have to worry about a lot of like base trap problems and stuff. Um, so I got really lucky with how, uh, you know, which rooms I picked to, um, you know, to work with. So, so if you're trying to record at home, you know, those are some things to think about. It's like, Oh, well maybe if you just picked a different room in your house, you'd have less problems. So that's just listening to the room and figuring it out. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just got done. I treated my face. I don't know if the farmers can tell, but um, I can literally tell the difference between walking from one room to the other and sitting down in here. You can mm-hmm. hear the lack of echo, and it's actually very startling. Like the first, I, I did it the first time this weekend. I was in my kitchen and making some food, and then I came and sat down here, and I was like, "Wow!" Um, but yeah, it, it, like you said, I mean, it's really to correct um, problems with the mixing space now. I'm sure also because you work in that control so frequently, your mix translation is not going to be hurt by that because you're so used to listening to everything in there and understanding the room works, right? I mean, so even without treatment, it's not as big an issue because you know that like you're going to tweak the case to sound this way in that space, et cetera. Right. As long as you can figure it out and um, and just know like, okay, well, in the in my room, I know that I got to be careful with you know, the base and not push it too much yeah. because maybe I'm not getting as much low end in here as I would in like a car. But, um, when you have right. issues like, you know, the, the walls just sound like they're fluttering or, um, or you have some issue where, you know, the, because of where you have your speaker set up in your room, like they're not phase aligned properly. And that causes you to right. think it really, it really does sound okay. But, um, inside your computer, you're actually making moves that are not going to, be anything at all what it sounds like when it goes out of your room so if you find that your mixes do not sound at all by any stretch of the imagination close to what you're working on in your space and that means you need acoustic treatment so right mm-hmm. okay so um we're gonna get to the last couple of questions here okay. do you have any secrets or tips you want to sh- share about capturing guitars vocals or drums um yeah, yeah. i know they're trade secrets oh <laughs> uh, they're they're not so secret um Maybe just uh, maybe once I explain how it works, it's just like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. But um, but there's no there's no real secrets. It's just knowing how you can use physics to be your best friend, and that's that's what all yeah. these uh, recording tricks really come down to is just thinking about um, just th- just thinking about what sound really is and just applying that general knowledge to everything. Right. So so for guitars. There are certain things that you can do to help shape your tone. So you have um, at every path in your signal chain, there's a, something that gets altered. So there's the player, there's the hands, there's the guitar and all the features of the guitar that we spend a whole lot of time right. talking about. Um, your cable, your amp, your your cab, those are all variables that you know. I'm sure this audience is very familiar with. But then when it gets to microphones and preamps and such, um, all of those pieces of gear have their own flavor, just like a guitar or an amp would have their own flavor. Right. So it's, uh, it's kind of knowing ahead of time what those things are going to do to your sound and then kind of calculate, is that going to help me or hurt me? But, um, but things you can do now to kind of start playing with is, um, using two mics on a cabinet. 
There's a lot yeah. of fun things you can do when you have more than one mic. Um, there is a technique called the Friedman technique, where you take a um, you take two fifty sevens or dynamic mics, you put one microphone um, pointed directly at the um, the speaker, and then you have another microphone right up against the first microphone. They're almost touching at a forty five degree angle, and what okay. you're doing is you are using the, um, the the mics are now out of phase. They're they're about ninety right. to forty five degrees out of phase. So that right. phase cancellation is actually going to EQ all of the hiss out of your guitar cabinet. Yeah, uh, I've actually done that before. That's a great technique. The other one I like is uh, using an open back cab, mm-hmm. one fifty seven in the front, and a, and, a, and a condenser in the back. And then, of course, you have to mess the phase and stuff to get everything working right. But you get a lot more low end from the from the back mic. So oh, yes. typically, I use a condenser in the back and mix them together so you can you know kind of interesting tones that way. Right. So there's a lot of really um, cool ways you can shape your tone using phase, and that's something that I think a lot of people who don't record don't understand. Um, and you know, and that's fine. But uh, but that's the thing you can do. You can use the phase relationship of the two mics to help you blend your tone. So um, and you can do that with. Um, you know, there's the 45 degree angle trick. There's the other trick of, you know, you have your normal mic, how you would normally set up in your cab. And then you take a, uh, right. like, like a condenser mic and you just, so you, and you put it kind of in the same spot and then you slowly start moving the microphone back away from the cabinet until you notice that the blend of the two starts to, uh, kind of react in a way where you get the most mid range where you start to notice that yeah. all the, all the mess starts to go away. So that's another thing Yeah, that, um, so that's that's a cool thing for a guitar. Um, for bass, I'm I'm very I've been uh, I've been experimenting a lot lately with putting chorus on the bass and different yeah. and different reverbs to uh, give it like a stereo effect. Um, and what I what I've been doing lately is I um, I split my bass tracks um, on most on most things. So I have a, like a very clean low end and then a very distorted kind of right. mid range and top end. Then when you blend them and then uh. I'll use the chorus on just the like the gritty one, so you get the pick attack and the sides and the low end in the middle, and it's nice and so if if it doesn't decouple it too much and give you like some weird kind of uh like psychoacoustic epileptic episode, then it, it usually works out. It's kind, of, <laughs> it's kind of cool, but like if you listen to like um like all those um what was the what was the band Filter that that nineties oh, yeah, band yeah. or whatever um yeah. They had that one song that's on the radio all the time still, uh, but that the intro bass to that has just so much chorus on it. You can you, you'll you'll be able to know what I'm talking about with with using yeah. the chorus on the bass. You hear it clanking away like almost like behind your head, and then the actual bass tone is like right in yeah. front of you, and it's it's really weird. Um, but it's also cool at the same time. It, it works in some mixes and not in others, and you just have to figure it out. But that's that's a cool little trick that I I think is neat. Um, Melodining the bass that's a that's another fun thing you can do. See, going to vocals. Another, oh, there's some, there's some pretty cool things I like to do with vocals. Um, something you can try is, uh, let's say, you want to, you want to multi-track your vocal and make yourself sound like there's like a whole group of you singing, right? Or um, so you have, a, you have your lead vocal on top, then you have all, you know, layers and layers of backing vocals. So one thing you can do is you can um, remove all the consonant sounds from your double tracks. And what that does is that makes the yeah. that makes the main vocal sound much more clear and forward sounding, 
and it, make, it brings all the background stuff back. And then, and then that way, um, because all the T's and S's and hard stuff that's going to cut yep. through, yeah, they're not they're not all perfectly going to be lined up. So that you're going to hear like like every time something happens like that. So when you take all those out, you just you have like this nice lush choir vowel sounds that you need to fit in with your vocal track. Yeah, you can hear that a lot on those old seventies double tracks where. You, you can tell that when they came into double track, they weren't quite lined up, and you get those those and the type things. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about there. Yeah, yep. So um, yeah. a, a lot of people will go in and just flat out remove them, or you can volume automate them, or you can DS them. But um, but something that really helps to clean up that's kind of, that kind of stuff is to make I, sure that the, uh, the consonants are out of there. And some people like it, I some people drums. don't. So you have to uh, check with your client first before you totally mangle yeah, their voice. Idea. But I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, sorry. I had, men- I had mentioned drums, and uh, I I wanted to just put this in there before you know you answer. But drums is like the biggest challenge for a lot of people because I think they see it as a single <laughs> instrument, and in reality, you know, every drum is its own instrument. It has to be mic'd in its own way and, and treated in its own way, uh, particularly if they're, you know, really different. Like, let's say you have a, uh, you know, metal piccolo snare or something, and then you have, you know, wooden toms, and mm-hmm. it can just be a whole other animal. Right. Um, well, the number one thing that people should think about when they when they start tracking drums is that every every microphone you add to your setup creates another phase problem. And so for people who right. don't know what people don't know what phase is when you have um when you have waveforms and they move up and down if all the waveforms are not moving up and down together then they're going to they're going to work against each other because those waveforms not only represent their um you know their energy signature that energy signature then gets put back into your speakers so if your speaker is supposed to move forward and then backwards then you have another track that moves backwards and forwards and your speaker is going to stand still and you want the maximum amount of movement for your speakers to be able to reproduce the sound. And so that's why you get weird, like, different EQ issues with phase. And so um, you want to use as, uh, the least amount of mics as you can get away with. Um, you want to keep your setup as simple as possible. So if, you know, if there's something that uh, is on the kit that you only hit once, just get rid of it and track it later. Just get that out of there. You want everything to be as super... Um, basic and minimal as possible to uh, reduce all the variables. Um, so that's that's one thing you can do. Um, but as far as just getting a good sound out of each individual, uh, uh, vomiting, each individual instrument, um, <laughs> um, is is really just taking the time to listen to every element and just just really get it right at the source. So that means you know keeping. Uh, Keeping a way to monitor each individual track, you know, listening to the snare drum by itself. Does it sound good on its own? Does it uh, does it blend well with the rest of the tracks too? Is there a crazy amount of bleed in there where you got to move the microphone around? Um, you really can't just set it up and forget it. You have to really take the time to, you know, move that microphone where it needs to be. Um, and so a lot of it is just attention to detail, and you'll go pretty far with your drum tracks with minimal gear spent um it's just taking the time to figure it out is is the is the trick um so i mean I, i've been recording drums 
for a while and I've had varying ranges of, of gear and I've been able to get pretty consistent results because it, you know, you just take the time you need to get it right the first time. Do you ever use triggers yeah. to help uh, with that? Um, not actual hardware triggers that you would like clip onto the drum, but I do inside my software do triggering to uh, sound replace. Yeah, I need it. That too. Um, yeah. I, I find that the, um, I haven't personally ran into a, a trigger setup that works 100% reliably all the time on every player. And, um, when you're spending a bunch of time trying to get the mics, right, it's, you know, you don't want to spend a bunch of time trying to get the trigger right too. So if I can get a good sound right. out of the drums, I'm going to have all the transient information I need to trigger later if I really need to. There's a really cool video on YouTube of some guy in his bedroom and he's, uh, he's playing drums on a, like his kick drum is a cardboard box and his floor top is like another drum, like yeah. extra drum thrown. And he just drumagogs the whole setup and it sounds like the craziest, like Vinnie Paul kit you've ever heard. And it's awesome. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually funny you bring Vinnie Paul up. I'm using, um, I, I'm using, uh, what is it? Easy drummer. Mm-hmm. And actually, I don't know whether I bought the pack or whatever, but his like snare drums in there and I'm always using it. So, um, oh yeah. Um, the, the Vinnie, anything that has Vinnie's name on it, whether it was like made by someone else or whatever, and that, that yeah. Pantera like style drum sound is, is right. really great for sample replacement. Cause it's all attack. There's no sustain. There's no character to any of it. It's just like, yeah. Here's the drum. It is loud and it is good. And there you go. It's dry so you, and loud, right? Right. So you just blend that in. You just sneakily just blend it in, and it sounds like your kit sounded good from the beginning. So. <laughs> oh yeah, Vinnie Paul, rocking yeah. hard. Well, they, mm-hmm. and and now you get these guys that are like freakishly good drums with their keyboard. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not that good at it, but I, I can I can be pretty convincing. And I'm I'm looking at my I got a, a little 24 key keyboard right here that I used to do like metal kick and all that stuff all the time. Oh yeah, and it's it's so funny because like people are like, how did you get those double bass sounds? And then I point to the you know, the MIDI controller and it's like, <laughs> you know, they, oh, they yeah. look at me like I'm nuts, but uh, it works. So it works um, and it's fun because I can't play drums, yeah. so that's how I do it. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, I suck at drums too. Like I'm, I have no rhythm for that thing, and mm-hmm. I have no coordination for it. I can play piano, but I play drums. All I can say is, right. um, once you get beyond two hands, <laughs> thank God for quantization or quantizing. That's all I can say. <laughs> oh yeah, and it only works when you record to a click. Um, so if you yes. want all your triggers to work, don't make me line it up to something that's not there, because <laughs> that would not. Be so <laughs> I've done it. <laughs> um. So, I, the last question I, I I'm still I'm still yet to find a guest we've had that that has a good story, but I know they're out there. Um, do you have like a studio story or something you'd like to share that's kind of funny or, or uh, challenging that you know you had to work through that uh, maybe somebody learned? I'm sorry, say that one more. You don't have to share. Oh, well, I'm just looking to. See. See if you have any like funny stories you'd like to share, or, or something challenging that maybe people can laugh out of. The, the whole thing is like uh, you don't have to name names or anything, but everybody's got like a little thing that's happened to them playing or whatever um, that you know makes them laugh or whatnot. Oh, okay, well, um, there is this. Uh, I, I'll name names on this one because this is just funny, um, <laughs> and uh, it, it's it's on them to uh, to 
to be the burden of proof for this because uh, if if they don't want this song to be heard by people, then that's totally fine. But uh, there is a a band out of Virginia Beach called I Ohms. You should go check them out. It's, it's I comma Ohms. They're they're uh, like a like a seven string gent band kind of thing, like kind of like periphery okay. Okay. North Lane kind of stuff. And so we're all big right. internet nerds, and we like memes and like you know just silly internet stuff, right? So. We're all fans of uh, HomestarRunner.com back when it was like a big thing, and so right, uh, right, right, right. So we did a uh, a version of one of their songs, um, and we replaced all the vocals with um, outtakes in the studio of us just referencing Homestar Runner stuff. And so, uh, <laughs> so there's like a Trogdor version of one of their songs uh, floating I was around. Just <laughs> Trogdor, yeah, that just didn't bring up. It started by we were we were doing backup vocals and we were doing like backup screams and um, just on the mic first take Trogdor and we're just like oh my goodness so here we go so I'm of course I'm copying and pasting Trogdor like it's a bass drop just everywhere and then uh and then they were like okay we'll put <laughs> put put like a 808 kick on like every downbeat. They're like, okay, and then we're gonna auto, <laughs> and then we're gonna auto tune these vocals to crap, and then we're gonna make like a five part harmony out of it. And so what we have is this beautiful, <laughs> insanely heavy, like Trogdor EDM metal track, and uh, that's hysterical. So that's that's floating around on my hard drive somewhere. And um, if you find that, if you could share that with us, that would be great. Show if you can find it. <laughs> if if, yeah. if they if they let me, we'll see. But uh, um. And then uh, another, but that's something I, I like to do regularly with my clients. If there's like a really funny um, thing that happens in the studio where like, oh, oh, I messed up and like they say something really hilarious, I'll like put it at the end of a song yeah. and, and send it to them. And, or like uh, one time I used that as a watermark, someone's, uh, you know, someone was just going on a freak out because like they couldn't get this right. And so uh, as a watermark for when I showed them their reference mix every 30 seconds, I would have their vocalist swearing in through the, into the song. So, they, <laughs> so like I would do that kind of stuff. Awesome. Um, um, I like, I like to do fun things like that with, with my clients just to, you know, keep things relaxed. And it's like, Hey, we're having fun. And sometimes it turns out to be really cool and they, you know, they appreciate it. So. So if you work with me yeah, and you no, do something cool. really like, dumb, I, I'm going to put it in your song, <laughs> and it's going to be fun. Oh yeah, um, that uh, that that exact same record I was talking about, the IOMS guys. The one of one of our outtakes did make it to the, uh, the to the final mix, and it is a huge staple in the song. And when you go see them live, they always do it, and everyone knows it's a thing, and it's great. And so it's like a little inside joke for them and all their fans, and uh, um, it just kind of worked out. So I can I can send you that song too, and you can post it. It's it's really it's really hilarious. It's like right in the middle of the breakdown. There's like this weird little vocal squeak that just is so out of place, but they they had to keep it in there. It was just too funny, right? So there it's it like is for everyone Elvis to enjoy. Thing. Yep. So for people people who don't know, Elvis was hiccuping in the studio, and that kind of helped develop a signature sound. Oh yeah. But um, that there's that, and then the one that I always think of when I talk about mistakes that like make a mix and characterize that song uh a couple of led zeppelin songs you can hear his bass drum pedal squeaking through the whole thing and it, and it like honestly if you remove it like it's it's one of those things now i listen for that every time i hear the song i, th- I know it's on when the livy breaks but it's on some other songs too mm-hmm. all right well um anyway. i think that's uh, that's our hour so uh i want to say thanks right. to yeah. Stephen miller again um 
in uh, Hampton Roads, and uh, we'll put we'll put your uh, your band information, obviously your your website and everything up on the um, your two bands uh, in the show notes. Um, and uh, since I'm in Chesapeake, I'll check out IOMS when I can find them live over here in Je- uh, Virginia Beach. Gent, gent, gent. Yeah. Yeah, dude, we gotta get into this, Jim.
Temporary fix, adjusting shape Taking deafness to the blind side They can feel the thoughts now unspoken The waves have shattered Survive Dying from inside 